This podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122 or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1800 RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact 000. This podcast also contains legal information. It is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. There'll be a first mention at court where you explain to the judge what the issue is, but the judge won't look at the affidavit material in any detail and then it will often get referred off to, in a case of property, to a conciliation conference, which is like a mediation with a conciliator um, who can make orders if the parties agree to them. Um, pardon? Are you following? Yeah, me neither. I think this is what they call legalese, a language that lawyers speak while most of us have no idea what they're talking about, even when they're talking about us. Hey, I'm Penny Terry and you're listening to Rule of Thumb. It's a podcast that gives you the opportunity to learn about the law through the eyes of women and the lawyers and counsellors who support them through legal proceedings. And the more I interview people, the more I learn how the application of the law can be quite problematic for all sorts of reasons. And the legal jargon, it's a big one. And that's what this episode is about. So here's a bit more of it. And then it will come back to court for further directions and, you know, a whole lot of things, steps are put in place along the way. So I think often callers think that as soon as you end up in court, you're sort of, you know, having a hearing, which just isn't the case. Most matters resolve, even if they're filed in court, uh, without a hearing. So with orders by consent. This is lawyer Una, and I promise I'm not picking on you, Una. Una has worked with the Women's Legal Service, who we're working with to create this podcast. And I had to keep interrupting her to make sure I knew what she was talking about, but she's used to it. She gets it. The law is complicated, right? But this legalese is also way more interesting than I expected. Just wait till we get to the part where women talk about preparing their affidavit. It's massive. And yeah, I didn't really even know what that word meant before this episode. But first, one of the words that seems to pop up in every sentence and is pretty much key to any legal proceedings is that word orders. So let's start the translation with lawyer Lillian. Orders are the things that that are binding on you and the orders just tell us what to do and what's going to happen. Generally, when we talk about orders, we're talking about things like final orders, orders right at the end when a matter has finished and those are the things that you have to do and they're binding on both parties. So if you don't do those things that are set out in there, they can be quite serious consequences. So another party can make an application to the court to enforce those orders and um, the court can rule that there needs to be fines or things like that. So it can have quite serious consequences if you don't comply with those orders. Um, Other types of orders that you have will be things like interim orders. You may have some um, court dates before 
getting to those final orders. So at that time, the court makes interim orders. So it might be that people have to do certain things. So it might be that they have to, in a, in a property matter, have to give disclosure of their financial details or it might be that they have to agree to a real estate agent or something like that. So we've got interim orders, final orders, consent orders. Yeah, yeah so consent orders are when parties have come to a final resolution and they've agreed between them, but they haven't actually got necessarily gone through to a hearing with a judge. Then they'll submit those to the court. The court will make sure that they are lawful. So in a parenting matter, they've considered what's proper and what's in the best interests of children um, and in a property matter, what is just and, just and equitable. Um, and then the court will make those orders, but they're based on the agreement that the parties have reached. I feel like we're in a restaurant. We're doing so many, so much ordering here. <laughs> An interim order would probably be like your entree or your appetizer and the final orders is your dessert maybe. <laughs> Uh, are there any other types of orders? I mean, parenting orders, I assume, is a type of final order? Yeah, so parenting orders are to do with, yeah, spending time with children, who they live with, um, those things that are concerning around what parents' roles and obligations are. And then you've got property orders. I suppose what we're all working towards is final orders. How are they delivered, orders? Is it a conversation? Is it a phone call, a letter? Oh, okay. So with orders, generally uh, your lawyer will be uh, will ask you initially, what is it that you want out of your matter? You know, they'll give you some legal advice as to what you can get. And so that's what we make into orders. So it might be in a property matter that one party retains a home and the other party receives a lump sum payment or something like that. Generally, they're delivered like in a quite a formal document with a, a seal from the court. And with family law matters, they are um, uploaded onto our portal. So we have a Commonwealth Courts portal. But only you and the people involved in the case can see them? Yes, that's correct. So you will know what your orders are so they don't just pop up and that's what you're told to do. You, you know, you will have some element of control around them, but often that will have to inevitably involve some negotiation. You can consider yourself schooled in orders, and it only took three minutes, thanks to Lillian. Now, usually there is stuff that you need to pull together so that orders can be made, and this is the stuff of an affidavit. How's that for a bit of legalese? Uh, but I'm not going to try and explain it. I'll leave that to Una. So an affidavit is um, basically your story written down in document form in that it outlines the client's story, their version of events, their concerns, the facts upon which, um, you know, they're seeking the orders that they're, they're seeking. Well, that explanation was simple. But what's the process like to pull it all together? Remember Jane? For her, it was massive. My affidavit was 80 pages long. What's that process like? Uh, uh, it, it brings demons out of the closet. However, you've got to face them. Um, it brings back just so many memories. Um, 
it's a, just a real emotional roller coaster. And also, you, you're fighting, you, it, like it's not fighting, it's not the right word. Uh, there's a fire inside you that keeps going to say, hang on a minute, no, this is not right. So, putting as much as you possibly can into the affidavit. However, I'd have to say that in my particular circumstances, the judge, judge didn't see it at all. And a lot of it boils down to he said, she said, unless you've got the actual physical proof. We had two credit cards. I had to explain what we spent the credit cards on from seven years ago. Can you remember what you spent on your credit cards seven years ago? Trying to get bank records. It's just ridiculous. And in the end, you're thinking, oh, oh, what did we really spend that money on? Like, I can't. Trying to find the physical proof is challenging, but well worth the effort. How much of your time did these proceedings take up? If you want the truthfully, 100% of my time, because if I wasn't working on it, it was in my head all the time. It never went away. It kept me up all night anxiety attacks like you wouldn't know what it never goes away because at the end of the day it boils down to what the judge actually decides if you can't mediate beforehand um so basically your whole life is in somebody else's hands who's going to tell you how the rest of your life is going to end up and and also i know like i really understand because i've been through the process i've seen that the family law process the court system is chock-a-block full but I didn't get to have my say I might have written it all down in an affidavit but if the judge hasn't read it how could I have possibly had my say can you imagine 80 pages of your story Jane said that it took up all of her time so how is it used in the system let's go back to Una Clients often um, do get quite um, anxious that everything's included in that first affidavit. And while it's important that everything, you know, relevant is, or as much relevant and useful information is included in that affidavit when you file your application or your response, um, another thing to remember is that if the matter does go to a hearing, which is the point at which the judge will actually look at those affidavits in any detail, there'll have been filing directions made and you'll have an opportunity to update all that information and create a new trial affidavit. So, um, you know, that often takes a little bit of pressure off at the beginning if that's explained to the client that the, it doesn't all, it's not sort of in or out. <laughs> um, if there's important information that comes up along the way, it can be included um, if necessary in a trial. Otherwise, it's just information that comes up in conversation between the lawyers or the clients, if they're self-represented, um, at conciliation conferences, um, up until a hearing, the affidavit really is for the benefit of the parties and their lawyers to have productive negotiations. Una told me that a lawyer will help their client prepare the affidavit so that it's in the client's words, but also making sure that all the right stuff is in there and in the right format. But... As Jane described, there's still a huge amount of work to be done to pull it all together. So, what's a good system for that? Remember someone we're calling Natalie from other episodes? Well, here's how she got it done. 
I think throughout the whole period that I was going through family court, it was like everything that happened, I had to sort of make a note of and put it in a little place so that when it came to affidavit writing time, I had all the material, all the text messages and, you know, communication, all the documents that related to, you know, what had happened. So what sorts of things? Um, well, I had records, you know, the communications from my ex directly to me. So there was documentation of his thinking, you know, records of showing that um, you're engaging in appropriate supports and, you know, comments from support services and so forth. So, yeah, it's just sort of like you're just keeping just bigger and bigger files uh, of stuff. And then when it goes to your settlement stuff you've got all of the financial documents and records of who who had what income at what time and yeah it's like a, it's just a constant wad of homework <laughs> that you've got to keep track of <laughs> now don't you reckon that just listening to natalie talk we can hear how good her legal literacy has become through her own experience for someone we're calling michelle She found herself doing her own homework to get a better understanding of exactly what the legalese meant for her situation. When when I first had legal contact, the the lawyer that I had, she said that, you know, you've got an intelligence to understand. So I I can sit here and say to you, this is what makes a case and this is what doesn't make a case. This is is what needs to be justified or these are the points that need to be there. Um, For example, she first pointed out to me that I'm not sure what the legal term is, but basically when you look at the criteria, it says things like, you know, you need to allow a meaningful relationship with the child and the other parent. And a lot of people would read that and just go, yeah, I'm entitled, I'm a parent, but that's not what it means. So I actually went and looked up and went, hang on, what does that mean? And a meaningful relationship with the other parent also has things which are put in final orders, which things I looked up and I made sure I was doing and that I was receiving along the way was not in front of the child speaking negatively about the other parent, things like that. So right from the start, I I just, you know, I just had this mindset that I I am going to have to defend myself even though I'm not guilty of these things from the start. We will have an episode where we look more closely at some of those legal terms in parenting matters, such as how the law determines what is a meaningful relationship and what's in the best interests of the child. I hope over the last few episodes your legal literacy has had a boost. I know mine certainly has. And I can understand how exhaustive this process must be particularly for women who are navigating the legal process on top of the trauma of family violence. Speaking of which, we haven't yet got that definition in legalese, and it might not be what you think, as lawyer Lillian explains. So we have an idea of what family violence is and we might use it in everyday language, but there are specific meanings 
in Tasmania, it's quite a broad meaning. So it's things like financial, emotional abuse, coercive control, um, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, those sorts of things. But a lot of people... Um, and what we believe, what we think colloquially of what family violence is, is often just to do with physical violence. But it is much broader than that, and there are legal meanings to it. How often are you having a conversation with a client? Convince isn't the right word, and explaining to them yeah. that perhaps they are in a family violence situation. Uh, that's probably quite a regular conversation. That's something we get on the phone lines quite often. They'll be explaining something to you, and what they're explaining to you um, fits into those categories of different kinds of family violence. Um, so that can often be quite a, like a difficult conversation to have with someone because they haven't identified it themselves. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a shock really. Um, and so that's when we offer, you know, to refer someone to other support services and things like that. And then they can have the opportunity to come back and see if they want some more legal help or if it's just more that support help that they need. These are big conversations that happen, connecting your experience with a legal definition and then perhaps having to go through the process to find evidence to support that. One of the people who provides counselling support is Jack Dalby and in the work he does, he thinks that even that process of collecting material for your affidavit can have a gender inequity. What? The men I've worked with and, and the men who've been with women I've worked with do from very early on is keeping is keep records of things that they can interpret as signs of the woman's bad behaviour. They're recording stuff, they're keeping text messages. Most of the women, when they get this stuff, will um, delete what they get in because it's just so nasty and they just don't want to think about it. Also, what tends to happen is that women like to communicate by text to protect themselves, but men prefer to communicate over the phone, partly because there's no record and partly because that way they can bring, you know, aggression and, and coercion and, and emotional manipulation there if, if they're those kinds of men. If they're not those kinds of men, these problems don't occur. So it's it's difficult to get women kind of mindset where they're looking to gather that kind of information. And by the time they get there, so much time has passed that it's actually quite hard to find what advice would you give women who might be listening to this or, or friends of women who might be listening to this about having some of that detail? Never delete a text. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what is best practice here? I mean, no one goes into a relationship thinking that they might need this stuff. But what if that's you? How would your current filing system work? What does work? Let's get some tips from lawyer Una. I would suggest, you know, starting to take notes because it will be important um, as far as possible to get, you know, details in there about dates, times, events, things that took place. Um, the court is not so interested in general statements about, you know, um, I guess family violence, for example. It's not enough just to say, there was family violence in the relationship. You need to outline in some specificity dates, times, what happened, what it was that constituted family violence. Family violence can be all sorts of different behaviours. So you can't assume that the court knows what you're talking about. You need to explain what it is um, that happened and 
yeah, it can help obviously too with, particularly with parenting matters, if there's sort of patterns of conduct that are of concern, um, to have a record of, you know, how often these things happened, what it was that took place, conversations, things that the child might have said, concerns they might have raised, you know, just a record of when a child's spending time with each parent, things like that. So taking notes can be really helpful. In both cases, generally, your lawyer will be asking you also for a bit of an overview of the time frame of your relationship. So when it started, when it ended, um, major purchases throughout, if it's a property matter, as much information about the financial circumstances as you might have access to, um, that sort of thing. What's been really useful, I have a client who had a really good habit of providing me with email updates. So rather than having to keep a diary um, in a book or, a you know, a, on a phone or whatever, I mean, there are also things that work, but she would send me every week just a, an email update um, explaining, you know, how the visit with the father went that week, what the children said when they returned um, and, you know, any concerns that she had around that visit. So when I went to help her draft that affidavit, you know, for that part of it was quite an easy process of just going through the emails, including that information and obviously having her confirm um, that that was all correct at the end. Mm. Okay. Have you had enough of the legal jargon for now? There is one word that we've missed out. De facto. Go on, have a guess. Do you know how the courts work out if you're in a de facto relationship? It is much more complicated than I ever knew and some stuff blows my mind. Relationships can all look very different. There's the traditional sort of relationship that we'd all all recognise as a, a de facto relationship. But um, I think what people sometimes don't realise that is even where the relationship may be one of two or three relationships that they're carrying on or uh, where they don't necessarily live together or there may not be a sexual relationship, they can still be characterised as de facto relationships by the court. It's not so much how the person themselves characterises the relationship so you might and we often do see clients say no I wasn't in a de facto relationship. So he's not my boyfriend she's not my girlfriend. Hmm. Or you know I'm married. Yeah it's a minefield. We'll look into de facto and property matters in the next episode of Rule of Thumb. And just a reminder to check out our show notes where we've got a heap of contact details for family violence support services and also places that you can go to get free individual legal advice. Please do not rely on this podcast for that. This is just general information. My name is Penny Terry. This is a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania and I'll talk to you next time. 